Good evening and welcome to our Bible study and prayer meeting. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians that God would grant them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith that they being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's join in singing together our opening hymn, 653. If you're using a book, 653. Love divine or love's excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. The opening hymn. <laughs>
Let's all pray together. O Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true and living God, we worship you this Tuesday night, for you alone are worthy. We thank you that we have been able to read and that we have been able to sing of the love of Christ and of that love which passes knowledge and yet at the same time that love which we have been given in some measure to know. How we thank you for the love of Christ, that love which brought him to earth, that love which took him to Calvary, that love which led him to sacrifice himself in our place and for our sin, and that love which drew us by grace to faith in him. And we know, O Lord, we love you because you first loved us. So we thank you for first loving us. And we thank you for giving us to love you in return. We know, O Lord, our love is so cold and so faint. But we pray that you would fan the flames of our heart's devotion towards you. O Lord, we do confess our many sins. Even this day, there are things we've done we should never have done. There are things we should have done that we've left undone. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We're so unprofitable and so unworthy. But we thank you that our acceptance with you was never based on our worthiness. That it has only ever been based upon the worthiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in his name we pray for fresh forgiveness. For in his name we pray for that renewed assurance of pardon. We do thank you, O Lord, for your goodness and mercy, which have followed us all the days of our life, which have followed us through the first part of this week. We thank you for being with us as we've been here and there and doing this and that. And we thank you for bringing us to another Tuesday night and to another whole church gathering like this, where we can gather together to hear your word and gather together to seek your face. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would speak to us and uh, that you would uh, touch our hearts by your word and by your spirit. May we hear your voice and may we be led on with you. And then we pray, O Lord, that you would hear our cries as we cry out to you for one another, uh, for the work of the gospel in and from uh, this uh, place, uh, for the extension of your kingdom throughout this land and all around the world, for missionaries serving you in foreign parts, for your persecuted people in various parts of the world, for those who are sick and struggling. As we cry out to you, O Lord, we pray that you would hear our cries, for we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's hear God's word, turning together this evening in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, and chapter 1, the first chapter, and we're going to read a few verses from verse 3 as far as verse 11. So that's Philippians chapter 1, beginning to read at the third verse. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you 
will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. On these first few whole church Tuesday nights in 2023, Gordon and I are sharing uh, this little series we've called a Praying with a Paul, where we're seeking to allow Paul's prayers, some of them at least, to shape our prayers as we seek God together as a church in this new year. So over four sessions, we're thinking about praying for understanding from Ephesians 1, praying for strength from Ephesians 3, uh, praying for fruitfulness from Philippians 1, and praying for patience from Colossians 1. Uh, So uh, tonight, the third of the four, we're uh, focusing upon the uh, closing verses of the passage that we just read together. Our text this evening, Philippians chapter 1, and verses 9, 10, and 11, where Paul prays for the Philippians, and he is praying for fruitfulness. That's our theme from this passage tonight. We read from verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And the key uh, to this passage really is at the beginning of uh, verse 11 uh, where Paul prays for the Philippians that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Hence our title for tonight, A Prayer for Fruitfulness. Paul desired that these Philippians would be fruitful Christians, that they would be a a fruitful church. And surely what what he desired for them, we should desire for one another. That we too should be fruitful Christians and that together we should be a fruitful church. But we might ask the question as we begin tonight, what what kind of fruitfulness? I guess we often, as evangelicals in our day and generation, we think of fruitfulness and we automatically think in terms of externals rather than internals and we automatically think in terms of our effect upon others and the gospel's effect upon others rather than the gospel's effect upon ourselves. 
Now, of course, it's not an either or, it's a both and. We do want to see that external fruit. We want to see uh, the gospel having an impact on other people. We want to see people converted and baptized and added to the church. We want to see that kind of fruitfulness. And Paul and the other uh, New Testament writers, they, they speak of that kind of fruitfulness in various places. But it's striking that more often than not, when Paul and the other New Testament writers speak of fruitfulness, they are not speaking, first of all, of that external fruitfulness, that impact of our gospel witness upon others. They are speaking in the first place of an internal fruitfulness of the gospel's continuing impact upon us as believers, shaping our character making us more like Jesus, and so then as a consequence, increasing our impact for the gospel in the world. And so what is Paul praying for here? Well, he calls it the fruits of righteousness. He speaks in terms of being filled with the fruits of righteousness. He talks about these fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus and which are to the glory and praise of God. We know, of course, we have no righteousness of our own. The only righteousness that we have ever had or will ever have is that which has come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the fruits of righteousness are the forming of Christ in us as believers and our growing in likeness to him. And what I want to do, the Lord helping me in the little time that we have uh, together this evening, is just to tease out from these three verses five words which highlight for us different aspects of uh, this righteous fruit that Paul prays for the Philippians and that he would encourage us uh, to pray for one another. We're not saying that these five things are the, are the whole deal. And they're only, they're only a part of it. But they're the, the five notes that Paul particularly seems to strike in this little prayer here in uh, Philippians chapter 1. And they're five notes which would be good for us to strike, not only in our prayers tonight, but in our ongoing prayers individually and together. So we'll just touch on each one briefly. Number one, love first half of verse 9 and this I pray that your love may abound more and more Paul prays that the Philippians would be characterized by love but not just that they would be characterized by love but that their love would abound and not even just that their love would abound but that their love would abound more and more that their love would be more and more abundant, that individually and together they would be a people increasingly characterized by the righteous fruit of love. What does this mean in practice? Well, it means a growing awareness of God's love for us. When this righteous fruit of love grows in our hearts, we have a growing awareness of God's love for us what is the gospel what is the good news that we believe and that we proclaim well is it not that God is love 
and that this God who is love in his very essence has loved. He has loved sinners like us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only has he loved, but he will love. Having loved us, he will love us and love us and love us some more. And he will never stop loving us. He will never, ever give up on us. So it's a growing awareness of God's love for us. And linked to that, the growing reality of our love for him. As this righteous fruit of love grows in our hearts, we are not only increasingly aware of his love for us, but in response, there's the growing reality of our love for him. Because his love for us draws forth our love for him. And the more conscious we are of his love for us, the more we feel ourselves loving him in return. And linked to that, not only a growing awareness of God's love for us and the growing reality of our love for him, but the outflow of that is the growing reality of our love for one another. Because we know that the New Testament emphasizes time and again that if we love him, we'll love one another. And that really it's a test of our love for God, of our love for Christ, what love we have for our fellow believers, what love we have for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So this righteous fruit of love, it is to have a heart like God's heart. It is to have a heart like Christ's heart. It is to have a heart that is full of love. It is to have a heart where love abounds more and more, bubbles up and uh, overflows. That's the first thing tonight, love. Number two, knowledge. Verse nine, that your love, Paul prays, may abound more and more in knowledge. Now, I'm not sure that we can drive big wedges between these five different things I'm talking about tonight. They very much overlap, but I'm just trying to tease them out so we can uh, focus on them in turn. But we don't deny that they're all connected. But we're thinking, secondly, about this uh, knowledge. And love and knowledge are intimately uh, connected in that uh, it's a result of God's love that we have come to know him and the more that we come to know him, the better we come to know him, the more we find ourselves loving him. But what is this knowledge here? Well, surely it is to know more and more of God and his glory. Because the more we know this God, the more we love this God. To know more and more of the one who is eternal. More and more of the one who is almighty. More and more of the one who created everything out of nothing. More and more of the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. To know more and more of God and his glory. But linked to that, this righteous fruit of knowledge is to know more and more of Christ and of his compassion. Of the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came into this world as the Son of Man. The one who went all the way from glory to Golgotha. Who went all the way to Calvary in order that we might be delivered from sin and shame 
and one day be with him in glory. To know more and more of Christ and of his compassion. More and more of God and his glory. More and more of Christ and his compassion. And also this knowledge, it's to know more and more of the spirit and uh, of his stirring. Because we know that this knowledge is no mere knowledge of the head. But this knowledge is the felt knowledge of the heart. It isn't a a merely intellectual thing. But it is... uh, Take your pick, experiential or experimental. It's something we know by experience. It's something that, as they used to say in Yorkshire where I grew up, is better felt than telt. Known and felt. You remember the old lines, true religion's more than notion. Something must be known and felt. Yes, that is that which we must know, but that which we know we must feel. And if we do not feel that which we know, we do not really know that that we think we know. We must know and we must feel what we know. To know and to feel the truth of God. To know and to feel something of the God of truth. To know this God personally. That's really what Paul is praying here for these Philippian believers when he prays for the righteous fruit of knowledge. It's that they might know God personally and that they might know him better and better and that they might ever be going deeper and higher in their experience of him. Knowledge. Number three, discernment. The third righteous fruit or the third aspect of this righteous fruit here is discernment. Paul prays, end of verse 9, beginning of verse 10, in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. Again, knowledge and discernment are related, but they are not the same. By knowledge, we understand more what we know. By discernment, we understand more the application of what we know to a given situation. There may be many Christians who know a little, but they may still be discerning in terms of being able to apply the little that they know. There are many Christians, sadly, who know much, but who lack any real discernment. And however much they know are not able to apply it to a given situation. But we need knowledge. We need to know. But more than knowledge, we need discernment. We need to be able to bring that knowledge to bear in a Christ-like, wise and appropriate manner in the various situations of life. There are many and varied situations in life, aren't there? That's true for us individually. And it's true for us uh, together as a church. During the years of our pilgrimage upon earth, we will go through many and varied situations in life. And how well we get through those situations, time and again, will depend not so much upon how much we know as upon how well we can apply what we know to the situation we are passing through. Time and again, a discernment is key. 
Discernment is to know what matters in a given situation. It's to know what matters more, because there may be many things that matter, but some things matter more than others. It's to know what matters most of all, because there may be many things that matter, and many things that matter more, but in a given situation, perhaps something that matters most, and discernment can identify what that is. Discernment is, what would God have me to do in this situation? Discernment is the application of a general principle to a specific scenario. Okay, the Bible teaches me this, but what does that mean in this situation in which I find myself? That's the difference, you see, between knowledge and discernment. Discernment can bring that knowledge to bear upon the situation in which we find ourselves. Paul, he's praying for these Philippians, that they would be fruitful, that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, that they would bear uh, these righteous fruits, love, knowledge, discernment. Number four, sincerity, verse 10. He prays for them simply, middle of verse 10, that you may be sincere. This sincerity here, it's, it's being genuine. The real thing, neither a fake nor a fraud. Being in reality on the inside what we profess to be on the outside. I've used this illustration before, but I've never forgotten that at my induction here more than 10 years ago now, one of the preachers, our good friend Alan McNabb, was here and when he was just introducing his sermon. He was saying about how he preached here in the church many times over the years. And he said, it says Welcome Hall on the outside. And he said, I've always found it to be Welcome Hall on the inside too. Well, may it ever be so. But what do we claim to be as Christians on the outside? It's always dangerous if what we claim to be on the outside is something different or other than what we are in reality on the inside. Sincerity, genuineness. In reality on the inside, what we claim to be on the outside. What does this mean? Well, it means to believe what we believe. That might sound a strange thing to say. But we need to believe what we believe, to really believe it. To understand that what we believe is not just about a mere intellectual assent to some form of doctrine. Nor is it holding some kind of mental reservation where we say, well, we believe all these things, but we're not really quite sure. But it's to believe what we believe, to believe that this is the truth. And that it should shape all that we are. And it should shape all that we do. To believe what we believe. Flowing out of that to live what we believe. In other words, to live in the light of what we believe. To put legs on our belief, if I can put it that way. That what we believe should shape our day to day. That we should be sincere in our daily lives. To believe what we believe, to live what we believe, and to proclaim what we believe. Because truth matters, and people need to know, and lost souls need to hear of God and of sin and of Jesus 
and of the wonderful way of salvation. As Christians in a fallen world, we will find that people will question what we believe. They will. And we shouldn't be surprised when they do. But though they may question what we believe, they should never have reason to question our sincerity. That though they may question what we believe, they, they should never question that we really believe it. An illustration's come into my head. Was it Whitfield? I think it was, but it's not in the notes, so I don't know for certain. But there was one of the old preachers, wasn't there? And somebody said, I'm going to hear, let's say it was Whitfield, I'm going to hear Whitfield tonight. And his friend said, you don't believe what he preaches, do you? And he said, no, but he does. In other words, he believes what he preaches, and so I'm interested, if he really believes it, I want to hear what he's got to say. People need to know that we really believe what we believe, that we live it and that we proclaim it. They may question what we believe, but they should never have reason to question our sincerity. And number five, got to get my teeth in place for this one, inoffensiveness inoffensiveness end of verse 10 that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ inoffensiveness without offense we need to be clear about two things on the one hand the gospel is offensive Paul talks elsewhere about the offense of the cross Fallen sinful human beings find a message all about the sinfulness of sin and the graciousness of grace offensive. It has ever been thus. So the gospel is offensive. But the second thing we need to understand on the other hand is that that's no excuse for Christians being offensive. See the distinction. The gospel is offensive. But that's no excuse for Christians being offensive. And yet we have to be honest and say that many are. And we all can be on occasions. And why is that? Why is it that, that any Christian would, would be offensive? Not just in terms of the gospel causing offence, but in terms of us causing offence, either to one another as fellow Christians or to a world of lost souls outside. And perhaps there are many reasons. But I'm increasingly convinced that two of the big ones are these. One is that there's a danger that we divorce truth from love. Because really you can't. Truth and love, they belong together. You can't really have truth without it being married to love. And you can't really have love without it being married to truth. But it's possible for us to think, well, truth what's, truth's what's important. And to allow ourselves to think of love as some kind of optional extra for the days when we sort of feel loving and can be bothered 
to make the effort. But if we divorce truth from love, if we allow that divorce to happen in our minds and hearts, however silently, we will find ourselves becoming increasingly offensive. So that's one, re- one reason, perhaps, that we can be guilty on occasions at least of divorcing truth from love. And another reason is that we can be more concerned with winning arguments than winning people. Aren't we all like that, at least on occasions? We see an argument to be won rather than people to be loved, who need our compassion. And yes, maybe to be shown a better way, but to be shown a better way from a loving heart, knowing that we care more about them as individuals than we do about simply winning an argument. There may be other reasons too. But I'm increasingly convinced those are two of them. When we slip as believers into being offensive, it's because either we allow ourselves to divorce truth from love and or we've become more concerned with winning arguments than with winning people. Sometimes you're convicted by your own sermons and I suppose that's how it ought to be. I'm certainly convicted by this next sentence. Christians should be the most amiable and amenable people in the world. They should. Christians, that's me, that's you, believer tonight, should be the most amiable and amenable people in the world. That is part of our testimony. And it is very much where our power comes from. Rather than being seen as something that's weak. If we were truly the amiable and amenable people that we ought to be. What a testimony that would be. And what power it would give to our witness in this world. Well our time is gone. But Paul prays for fruitfulness for the Philippians. We should pray for fruitfulness for ourselves and for one another. These righteous fruits of repentance. Among them love knowledge, discernment, sincerity, inoffensiveness. And you put these together and it's like putting pieces in a jigsaw, isn't it? And what do you find? Doesn't it begin to look a whole lot like Jesus? There was none more loving than him, none more knowledgeable than him, none more discerning than him, none more sincere than him, None more inoffensive than him. Because ultimately, that's what being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, looks like. It looks a whole lot like Jesus. So let's pray for ourselves and let's pray for one another that we might know this fruitfulness And that individually and together we would be helped to look more and more like our blessed Saviour. Amen. We'll sing the hymn 373, 373. All praise to our redeeming Lord who joins us by his grace and bids us each to each restored together seek his face. The next hymn.